A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Anoush. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we cover the latest chaos at the Trump White House and say farewell to Anthony Scaramucci. Then we ask whether partisan sites should get lobby passes. And we talk a bit more about political theatre and other political fiction. Plus, the New Yorker's profile of Sadiq Khan. Then you ask us, where is Jeremy Corbyn? Hello and welcome to our um, silly season special. Um, Stephen is resting in a fur-lined box somewhere, regenerating um, after having uh, a, a, a quite a busy election period. So I'm joined by Anoush. Hello, Anoush. Hello. Hi. Uh, let's um, let's whip through the news stories of the week for anybody who um, has also been resting in a fur-lined air control uh, air conditioned box. That's how I imagine him. Mm. You know, like one of those in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> in a blue suit. <laughs> Yeah, like one of those, um, you know, when people buy a doll and they really don't want it to kind of get, yeah, get manked. With the TY tag still on his ear. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's probably what he's doing. Um, <laughs> or he's on the beach in a suit. Um, but uh, one of the things I found most incredible to follow this week has been the story of the Trump White House because it's this really bizarre situation where he's now got into this kind of crazy zone where things that would normally have been massive scandals are now completely no longer scandals. The, the the scandal bar has been raised to a level actually only really found in the TV series Scandal. Yeah, well, that's the impressive thing, is that he all of these things that would have been a huge news event of the month are just a sort of minor nib on the day. So I think when the Scaramucci affair happened, I thought, well, I can just ignore it because I know it's going to be out of the way in a few days' time and I don't even really need to know who he is. And actually, I was vindicated on that because he actually left his post 10 days after taking it. Yeah, what a great run he had, though. I mean, that's somebody who sold off their hedge fund because they thought they were going to get a job in the Trump administration, then got blocked from having a job in the Trump administration, then finally got their Mm. job in the Trump administration on like the same day that their wife gave birth to their child, having filed for divorce because of their... Yeah, she filed for divorce. Uh, He didn't didn't see the baby for four days because he was with Trump uh, when Trump made the speech to the Boy Scouts. And then... Oh, God. Yeah. I actually feel a twang of... For, for pain yeah, for, yeah, for Mrs. Scaramucci, yeah, yeah, not so yeah. much Anthony Scaramucci himself. And then, yeah, basically uh, had a pretty wild night, phoned up Ryan Lizard from The New Yorker, spouted off about how he hated all his colleagues, yeah. and then was then told off by Donald Trump for inappropriate language, which is a redefining <laughs> hooks. quite a high bar. Yeah. And then ejected out again. I mean, uh, you know, it's really put into context every bad first week and every job I've ever had. Yeah, and I loved Donald Trump's um, conclusion of the whole thing where he's and it's a great day. <laughs> Another great day. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree with you. I think it's one of those things where you just actually think, I- I'm going to opt out because I don't need to know. Because I-, I just think at some point, 
you know, my my belief all along has been that the Republican Party would at some point pull the life support out if they felt that he wasn't, you know, he was became an active drag on them. But mm. what's becoming more and more apparent is that they seem to have no balls at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he can do things like lose votes and, and fail in the way traditionally that politicians fail. And he can also have these sort of terribly embarrassing scandals and um, incompetent sort of staff problems. But neither of those things means that anyone's going to do anything about it and we just brush them aside. Do you know what's a really hilarious and also horrifying thing that some people have been doing, which is keeping track of what the scandals were at this um, point in the Obama presidency. And a couple of weeks someone had one that apparently Obama went to, um, he went to like a a place they were serving lunch counters. And you know they have, what I realise now is the spit shield... Right, they have oh, a, yeah, know, the glass the panel glass. at the front when they're serving up stuff from trays, so that you can't lean and breathe into it. Basically, <laughs> he leant over that to make a point to somebody when he was talking to them, and there was this whole Disgusting. like, <laughs> like Obama's saliva gate. <laughs> that was the level of, um, or like the fact that you know something that British lobby hacks still get really, really up in arms about um, is removing the Churchill bust from the West Wing. Like this, was oh this yeah, that was a huge insult to Britain. And then you get Trump giving an interview to the Wall Street Journal, in which he says, "You don't hear the word Britain very much." anymore like <laughs> and I, no one cares yeah and, and, and it was a great moment so people say Britain and I'm like nope <laughs> and, and and but it's just yeah um Paul Krugman's great phrase is you know he's been graded on a curve right so if he can just sort of st- I mean the latest thing today is that he went to give the speech to the Boy Scouts of America and started rambling about his electoral college victory <laughs> to all these like nine-year-olds who must have been like daddy what's an electoral college um and then said that that afterwards, he said in this Wall Street Journal interview that the um, the head of the Boy Scouts had phoned him to say it was the best speech they'd ever had. In fact, the head of the Boy Scouts had to apologise because it's a non-partisan group and he was making Republican talking points at it. Oh, really? God, what? I mean, what a desperate situation you must be in if you're making your political points at a Boy Scouts I bet it's very soothing. Just be like, I just, yeah. yeah, I really swept the Midwest, lads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No one's going to question that. No. So, um, yeah, so that's... I, I don't. I I hope I've got slightly more reassured about the Trump presidency because I think its incompetency will protect us from the worst of it. Mm. But the fact that he now has a general as his new chief of staff because Reince, the improbably named Reince Priebus, mm. managed. To, he was the only, he was like taken down in the brief glorious Scaramucci era. Um, and I just think he's got this innate affinity with military hierarchy. Right? He wants. He'd rather run a military hierarchy than a government. Yeah. Because people don't question you. Yeah. Yeah. So. so that is a deeply scary point. Yeah, that's scary. But then equally, you know, he sees himself as the general. So maybe he'll just clash with having a, another general there and we'll see someone else out of a job. Yeah. Yeah, let's hope. Um, let's hope. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I know you've got um, it's kind of similar opinions to me on this, is to wildly swing between topics, is mm. the political lobby system. Now, we had Laura Kunzberg, who's the BBC's political editor, come in on our sister podcast, Deep Dive, we ran during the election, to talk about that. And she you know, gave a good defence of the lobby system as being um, a way of, you know, a lot of unfiltered access for journalists to politicians. And actually, in a way that you don't get in America, mm. there's been big complaints about, you know, the fact that for a while, um, Sean Spicer wouldn't allow the White House briefing to be televised, for example. I mean, none of our lobby briefings are televised, but, you know, that actually it was very hard to book appointments with senators to speak to them. Whereas having everybody mingling around together in the Palace of Westminster does mean it's a lot easier to kind of clobber people and go, hey, can I just ask you about... Exactly. And you can defend it to the extent that if you look at what um, journalists in Brussels are like, it's a far more respectful atmosphere of politicians in the sense that they, you know, you can see them clapping at press conferences and not really getting that much beneath the official sort of spokespeople's 
line. Whereas in, in Westminster, although we do have this chummy relationship with our politicians via the lobby system, we're still just not as, as obsequious as in other places, even in the US as well, pre-Trump. Yeah, but so the news has come through that Brexit Central, which is a kind of um, it's a website run by former members of the of Vote Leave, really. Mm. Um, so it's pretty overtly partisan news source. Uh, has applied for a lobby pass. Um, Evolve Politics, which is one of the kind of alt-left sites, have applied for a lobby pass. And uh, the Canary, our um, long-term sparring partner, the Canary, <laughs> uh, are said to be kind of thinking about it too. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't really see how you can really object to these sites applying for lobby passes if you look at who already has access to the lobby. So you have Labour List, which is a outwardly partisan website, which is funded, I think, by unions or at least Labour-affiliated organisations. So, you know, that's very much going to be publishing one side of a political argument. You'll, I think Conservative Home mm. have passes too. And then you also have the less obvious, so, you know, the Canary wouldn't say it's a sort of Labour mouthpiece. And you also have places like the Express that wouldn't say it was a UKIP mouthpiece, but they have passes. Yeah, and I also think if you're going to talk about kind of fake news, then, you know, the Sun had a made-up story, really, on its front page yesterday about um, these Facebook killing these AI bots that started talking to each other, which was not only a month-old story, but one that was kind of what pretty widely debunked at the time. Yeah, so. and it also had that story just before, I think, either the referendum or the election, I can't remember, about... Um, how many Muslims, you know, back terrorism or some false stat like that, and they had to apologise for it. So they they're always running inaccurate, quite dangerous stories. Yeah. Um, so I, I so yeah, I, and also I kind of think. Um, I mean, I've never been a, a member of the lobby. I thought about it. I, have you? Have you ever? I had, have. Yeah. I've, do, I've you've done I've your had time. A couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I did five years at the Daily Mail. My, you know, <laughs> yeah, not I really you on anyone's high horse about this kind of <laughs> stuff. But I, one of the reasons I didn't really want to do it because I think it. I think it puts you in a really difficult position by spending all day with people from rival newspapers. I think that's a situation that's really open to kind of to group thing. And I think that's particularly an issue for the left-wing press because the, you know, the print press is so dominated by the right that when the kind of huddle happens and people decide what the line is, mm. it's unlikely that the line is going to be, wow, Jeremy Corbyn really knocked that one out of the park and Diane Abbott, she's a stone-cold genius. Exactly, and that's not because there's some kind of conspiracy after each briefing where all journalists huddle and say well, how are we going to bring down Labour? It's because it's just a bit scary straying from the pack, particularly when you've got, you're taking your copy back to your editor and it looks completely different from the line that everyone else has taken. So I think that's just sort of a groupthink, um, slightly scared of straying uh, mentality there, which is a problem. Less of a problem for magazines because they don't have to go to every single sort of news briefing. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of not uncomplicatedly right-wing, I would say, in the sense that I think it's far more... I think you probably find far more because most journalists now have degrees, right? Actually, mm. thanks to the um, sort of breakdown of local newspapers and that route into into journalism, most journalists now have degrees, if not postgraduate qualifications. And that means that I would say also political journalists probably personally leaned very very heavily towards Remain, and certainly what I now think of as kind of culturally Remain, right? As a as a premise. So I think yeah. there is, I do think there is a, that problem, which comes out of no fault of their own, is that a lot of people send one person or two pers two persons, three persons, four persons, <laughs> um, to the lobby. But then you, when you bring that group together, it is homogenous in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's very male, it's mm. very white, uh, it's very privately educated, I imagine it's very dominant on it, it's very, very university educated. Yeah, and um, that 
that's true. So it, it does bias in a number of ways, but it does also reflect um, the inequalities in Parliament as well. And so I think it would be exciting, actually, to have a few people who maybe they don't have that different a background to all of the mainstream journalists who are already there, actually, but people with different views and quite extremely different views. It would be quite fun to see the kind of questions that they ask the government and opposition spokespeople when they're behind the scenes. I think it would be fascinating to see whether or not um, you can maintain your anti-establishment viewpoint. Because, you know, there's that idea of regulatory capture, right, which is mm. always that it's really hard for regulators because particularly you know, there's a revolving door with the industry that they're going on. You know, they're often paid much less than the people, like financial regulators are paid much less than the people they're regulating. It's very hard to maintain your kind of, you know, intellectual independence in that. So yeah. I just feel like six months after the canary joined the lobby, you'd start seeing kind of like, Hmm, you know, maybe XMP, who's quite good fun, is not so bad after all. Yeah, it will be difficult to avoid that because the thing, the great thing about the lobby is that it gives you sources. And so you get more stories because you've got more people to speak to who know what's going on. And so they're not going to be able to avoid that. And probably from their point of view, they want to have that access. Um, so it will be difficult for them to avoid running sort of stories from different perspectives. But equally, you know, I've spoken to a few people about this and they don't, these sites, you know, they don't really see being mainstream as a problem. It's what they want. They want people, they want Britain's mainstream opinion to be the kind of angles that they take on stories. So you can see why they want to be in in the establishment, in inverted commas. But I also think there's such a mood at the moment that no one wants to be in the establishment. I mean, I, I feel like every other headline I now see on The Independent is, and you won't hear about this in the mainstream media, and you're like... Yeah. In what world is the independent, not the mainstream media? Well, I love I love it when they run articles like that because the one way to get people to read stories that aren't really being read but are available in the mainstream media is by just lying to people and saying that they've not been written about. Should we have a contest where we try and find the most boring story we can get people to read by sort <laughs> yeah. of heavily implying and there's, then a, think, there's a conspiracy? And then why is no one writing about this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that as an idea. I'm going to yeah. go away and force you to write, like, my cheese sandwich has disappeared from the fridge. <laughs> the but you won't hear about it on the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. reckon you could probably get a really big audience yeah, for that. Yeah, okay. One for, one for silly season. All right, sorted. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. So um, one of the things that we took the advantage of uh, not having a magazine is that uh, Anoush and I went on like a like an outing. On a jolly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it was only to Richmond. I mean, it wasn't like I and Napa, let's not get carried <laughs> away. Um, but we went to see an early play by um, James Graham called Albert's Boy, which he wrote when he was 22. Is that right? It's early 20. Disgustingly young, basically, is what I'm getting from this. Yeah. But I wanted to talk to you because Stephen and I... Um, I had a chat in the podcast last week about our best political influenced fiction in the widest possible sense. We talked about lots of TV shows. And thank you, everybody um, who tweeted, by the way. I had completely forgotten about State of Play, the good 
BBC UK version, not the terrible film that they made out of it, which had David Morrissey in. Uh, yeah, I remember that. It was really yeah. good. Um, and there's also another one that I can't remember that I suspect might have been rubbish, but was uh, about, it had Rick Mail in it, which is always a good thing. And it was, it kind of came down to somebody who was a serial killer who, who'd read a lot of Malthus and thought that the population needed to be reduced. So if anyone can remember the name of that, it's really Is this hard. a Shazam situation where it didn't actually exist? <laughs> it's really hard to Google TV programme with Rick Mail in Malthus. I guess I could go to his IMDb entry. <laughs> I think but that's I'm, niche enough. To someone some must, must know. Yeah. But um, if you had to make recommendations for political fiction, what would you um, Well, I think we've spoken about it on the podcast before with the man himself. Um, this House, the play by James Graham that came out a few years ago and has, a good f- has had a good few runs. Um, it's about the minority government and um, in the 70s and uh, the effort to try and get people to turn up to votes, basically, which sounds like a very dry premise. And I remember when Stephen and I actually interviewed James Graham, who's the playwright, he was saying, you know, this was the least sexy subject ever and I took 50 pages of it to the National and just thought that they were going to laugh in my face. But actually, it made a really nice play, um, which actually speaks to some of the problems in politics today. Well, that's good because I'm... Not to turn this into the James Graham love no. hour. Although, <laughs> if you're listening, James, we do love you. Um, no, but I'm going to go and see Ink uh, again, actually. I went to see it for the press night but I'm going I'm taking um, Jonathan tonight which is about the founding of the sun which I think is a political play in the broader sense and actually it's transferring to the West End um, soon and what's really interesting about that I think that there's a the key scene in it which kind of sp- speaks to what we were talking to before about um, the alt-left sites and what they're doing in a tabloidy way is you have Larry Lamb the first editor of the sun standing around with this kind of kind of slightly eclectic group of outsiders that he's built up and saying what do you really want to be in a paper not what you think you should read but what mm. you really want to read. and they say you know like sex I want you know I want the pools I want you know horoscopes I want football Mm. Um, all of these things that people like but were kind of felt that they weren't allowed to say that they liked Um, and the 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 play very well plays off Hugh Cudlip's sort of more elevated idea about what journalism would be with this kind of basically kind of full id idea of you should you know like your, your the the media should just give you what you want and it feels like the where we are now Unfortunately, that is the logical endpoint of that because not only do we want, you know, commercially you have to give people what you want because the revenues are so small, but you can literally see in real time what people want. You can't lie to yourself that people want to read your, you know, leader column on the future of social democracy. <laughs> yeah, alas, it's never that. Alas, well, I mean, what's the most read thing that you've written recently? I bet it's uh, it's so frustrating for me. It's so often something that is just like me having a small shout into a box. I think my most read thing this month, and actually it is sort of slightly depressing depending on what your interests are, was a piece that I wrote in about 40 minutes about Love Island. <laughs> oh, so that is why is Love Island so Tory? Yes. And other things that I've done this month include an investigation into how employers treat the mentally ill. <laughs> but no, no one's reading that. Yeah, so that, um, but this is the kind of condition of modern journalism. And the trouble is you get lots of people piously sort of saying, well, you know, but journalists should do X and do Y. And you kind of go... But yes, I, agree. I I completely agree with you on this level. But commercially, like if we're going to have this idea that the, the media is a, is a commercial industry, it's also got to do enough stuff to make generate revenues yeah, to, to support it. Exactly. And the kind of response you often get from readers online um, when you write articles like that is, you know, why aren't you covering this? You know, how can a serious magazine spend its time on such a frivolous thing? Um, 
and you know half of it is you know why does why is there sort of a bias against sort of low culture and why should we only be doing things that are sort of in inverted commas sophisticated but also you're not reading the other stuff <laughs> so it's sort of like well once you start clicking on our coverage of you know the the Yemen crisis then maybe you know we'll take your talk, take your thoughts more seriously um so yeah that's slightly frustrating okay what about a political book can you think of a political, a political book, book? um <laughs> Uh, I'd usually try not to read political books because I think it's too close, too close to what <laughs> I do in general. Um, what have I read recently? I mean, something that I've read that I really enjoyed that's not a book is the, the New Yorker profile of Sadiq Khan, which is really, really good. Have so you read it? I have read it. I think it's really interesting. So I have a okay. Let me tell you my thoughts. So it's written by um, Sam Knight. Knight, who's also written a brilliant. Um, he wrote a great piece about what's going to happen when the Queen dies, Operation London yes, Bridge. He's yeah. a great... So I start off on the premise that I think um, Sam is a really good writer. I, I think a couple of things about it. It's got a lot of backstory about him and his lawyering past mm. and his kind of, you know, the way that people have tried to sort of smear him for being Muslim, which I thought was quite interesting, but maybe a bit too much of that, I think, maybe for a UK audience. Oh, so I thought that bit was the most interesting because ah. I remember being aware around the mayoral campaign, which I covered quite closely, of... Um, Zach Goldsmith, who was his opponent then, trying to find anything to smear him with. And I thought Sam Knight's profile did a really good um, job of contextualising all of those smears and all of the ways that people were trying to dig stuff up from his past. And, you know, as a civil rights lawyer who works with the, um, you know, Pakistani community in, in such a diverse city, there's going to be people that you spent time with or you communicated with that might have things that tabloids would like to run stories about. So I thought it was really good because it... Yeah, no, I agree with you. And one of the things that consistently comes up when people talk about whether or not Keir Starmer could be a Labour leader is the fact that he was a human rights lawyer. And basically human rights law is, would you like to insist that this bastard is still entitled to basic rights? Exactly. And yeah. to do that whilst also yourself being visibly and publicly Muslim is, is kind of an extra thing, right? Because yeah. you you can, and, and you know, we see how much the idea that Jeremy Corbyn, the terrorist friend, has become a kind of meme. You could definitely do the same thing with some of the people that Keir Starmer is. Um, as defended, and you can certainly do it when your when your target is already somebody who is a brown and a Muslim, right? Exactly, yeah, and and to think of him as such a walking target because of those reasons, it's surprising how little stuff there was to stick to stick on him. But the other thing I thought it captured captured really well. There's this great line in it which says he is never quite genial, mm. which I thought was a really telling line. So I wrote about my newsletter this week about um, a couple of years ago when he was running for London mayor. Um, Sadiq Khan invited me and a couple of other journalists for iftar. You know, when you break yeah. fast at Ramadan. Um, and it, and, it, and yeah, he is he is a really he's a nice person to spend time with. He's got a really nice family. Like mm. he's very personable. He remembers everybody's name who he meets. He's always got a you know a thing that he will talk to you about. Like his soft skills at politics are, I think, in, incredible. You know, he's got that, which I think people like in the in London mayors that sort of minor royal thing where he you just feel an aura about him of of, of you know the, uh, of pleasantry, but also a bit of elevation. Yeah, that's true. He does feel yeah. quite iconic. He's got a good presence, but he's also so a bit of a geezer and quite yeah. friendly, yeah. But also the other, the really interesting thing is, so we we had this really nice meal, and um, but he said, you know, do you want to see me pray? Mm. And I didn't say yeah, which is very unlike me because I'm incredibly nosy. That's mm. why I became a journalist. But I thought, well, I feel really uncomfortable about doing that. It feels like a bit zoo-like, right? Where you know, and I, and I, you know, I grew up in a very um, very religious household, and we prayed all the time. So it's not like. You know, I'm I'm unfamiliar with what people look like mm. when they're praying. But I thought it was his bravery. Really, I think has been underplayed in 
how much he has felt the ambassador for Islam, for moderate Islam. And there's that great line in the profile where he talks to Harriet Harman. He says, you know, I don't want to be yeah Muslim guy. Muslim and she said, well, I didn't want to be, you know, women's spokesperson, but... You don't have a choice. Man up, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. classic kind of Harman, like, <laughs> you know, you didn't, if you don't do it, who will? Well, my favourite line from the piece, slightly different from what we've been talking about, was um, the fact that he shared a double bed until he was 24 and got married. Uh, not a double bed, sorry, a bunk bed. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the same um, with his one of his siblings. Um, and I was just, I thought that was really, I didn't know that. I thought that was a really telling sort of piece of information about someone's life. Lost over that because yeah. I think the whole family still all live in and around Tooting. Yeah. They're a very kind of rooted family. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that was a, I thought it was a good profile from from that point of view i'm trying to think whether or not i've read any other really brilliant there's going to be i mean one day there, it's a shame he wasn't in office long enough for there to have been a great scaramucci profile yeah because he would have he yeah he He's would a definitely footnote, not a profile oh i know <laughs> but sometimes those are the most yeah. fun in a way like people who've just been on the kind of the edge of history mm. um because there's more to say about them but yeah i really enjoyed that um justified my uh, New Yorker subscription even <laughs> you know when I get it and I look at 30 pages of listings about Brooklyn theatre and I think really it's yeah. <laughs> not any use to me and now for a segment we like to call you ask us. See, you get into the spirit of this. <laughs> Bloody Stephen, grumpy. <laughs> Hushing my mellow. Um, a very simple you ask us this week, which is, where is Jeremy Corbyn? Which is a bit like um, that bit in 1066 and all that. It's like, you know, oh no, I'm too, this is one of those times where I do a reference and a 20-something member of the uh, team looks at me <laughs> Stop like... Stop talking about gone. political books, Helen. <laughs> no, I've just gone... It's, I only watch Love Island, okay? Yeah, it's just like, oh, you'll remember what they said in the grimoire. Of the, <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so yeah, so um, you're right, the Labour Party has been quiet. It has, but isn't that clever, though, because the Conservatives are in such a mess? I really thought when uh, Chuka Amuna did his single market amendment that the Labour Party were just going to do that thing where they where they ruin everything for themselves while while it doesn't where they while they really don't need to but actually they've gone quiet again which I think is a very good idea it's a really interesting way to calculate how you spend your summer actually if you're a political party because I think you're right meaning quiet now when actually there's really only Brexit is still going to kind of tickle mm. on and, and cause the Tories a lot of problems as you know their internal contradictions of that are revealed but you know, Ed Miliband did try in one of his early um, years as leader to do the same thing and just go quiet. I think he basically thought it was time for them to all to have a holiday. Yeah. And then the Tories piled in and picked and stuff apart. And I think you can already see that a bit happening at the time splash on Wednesday is uh, Corbyn you know, needs to sort of denounce what's happening in Venezuela. Mm. And there is and, and there isn't a problem that you do leave a kind of attack grid open for the Conservatives just to kind of put out that kind of stuff. Yeah, I do remember that summer where Ed Miliband tried to stay quiet and everyone called it a sort of terrible summer for Labour. But maybe that's because Labour just weren't there to say, actually, it wasn't a terrible summer, we just weren't saying anything. Um, but yeah, Jeremy Corbyn is supposed to be going round the country, I think, to 70 different marginal constituencies. I might be wrong on the number. I think he's going to 40 and then they're doing oh, okay. a lot and they're doing more different overall. things. Yeah. Um, so I think he's... So, yeah, I don't know where he is at the moment, but I think it's... has got to be out of London, because yeah. let's be honest, London... 
inner London doesn't have a lot of marginal cons- well apart from Kensington maybe he's just popped down to Kensington yeah, for lunch yeah, but, maybe yeah um, so yeah he's supposed to be going around the country to each of these constituencies and it's actually part of what Labour are doing more broadly which is basically trying to campaign when there's not an election coming up well I can see why they want to do that because actually the the discipline that they had of the two kind of warring factions that during the election campaign was obviously incredibly helpful to them mm. you know, there's been this whole tedious argument about like did they do so well because of Corbyn or in spite of Corbyn? And the kind of brutal truth is both, right? In some places it was despite, in some places it was because of. But undoubtedly what helped was a united Labour Party. Um, so I think that's a, that's a very strong reason why they want to stay on campaign footing all the time. Yeah, and also because it's the thing that he does best. So I think they're slightly worried that the me- momentum, no pun intended, is going to run out this summer because he's got nothing to sort of campaign on. And it's when he's at his best. He loves going to these big uh, rallies and he loves addressing his supporters and going around the country and sort of firing people up. How can he do that when there's not really anything sort of concrete to fire people up for? So I think they want to kind of keep that as his his thing. Yeah, I think there's a bit... I mean, I think, obviously, as I said before, Brexit is a, continues to be a huge test for the, the Labour Party. Unfortunately for people on my side, i.e. Ramona's, mm. I don't think there is a lot of problem electorally for Labour in, in continuing to be quite tough on Brexit. So that makes me a little bit sad because I'd rather that somebody was out there advocating for stuff that I believe in, which... But tactically, I can see the point of Labour not doing that. Mm-hmm. But also, I think there's a big test coming with that budget. I mean, Philip Hammond has got to try and, you know, he could kick his spending. I mean, obviously, the thing to do, right, is you kick your deficit target because it turns out nobody cares. Yeah, no one cares. cares. And also, you can't drop a deficit target like Theresa May did when she became prime minister and then say that you need one again sort of thing. You (laughs) know, like it's it's gone. The the argument for it has disappeared the moment that she didn't make it a priority. Yeah, but even George Osborne, who was like Mr. Deficit Target, consistently didn't meet it. And it turned out, no, literally no one cared. So... I think there's a really interesting fight ahead about how much Philip Hammond is willing to relax um, public spending cuts and the plans that they had, that the Tories have for those, mm. particularly after giving a huge bung to the DUP. Yeah, exactly. And that's all good for Labour because if they do stick to their cuts and their freezes, then it's then Labour can say, well, how can you give all of this money to the DUP and not to people who are struggling? Yeah. And if they relax it, then Labour can claim it as a victory. And go, well, now you agree with us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so if you see Jeremy Corbyn out and about, uh, do feel free to, <laughs> to tweet us. Um, perhaps we could go on a, another outing. We could go and see the huge mural of him, which is in no way weird. Where's that? It's in Islington. Oh, okay. And it says like, Oh, it says like something like the face of a man of principle and then there's like an eight-foot mural of his face. <laughs> if you would like to send us photos of yourself with the mural, please uh, please also do tweet him. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Anusha Kalian. We're produced by Indie Book and mixed by James Shield. Why not follow us on Twitter? Why not actually go to Facebook and find a page that someone's alerted me to this week, which is called Stephen Bush Memes for New Statesman Loving Teens. And uh, maybe leave a meme of me because I feel a bit sad that I don't have any memes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.